I'd like to say there's a lot of different styles of preaching, and, and Pastor Terry has taught homiletics and, and, and understands most of them. I don't, his style of preaching is um, conversational, and it's very rare. It's a very rare gift to find a preacher that has a conversational style of preaching. It's not something you normally come across. Uh, there are other different forms, and I, and I don't know what they're called, different ways to exegete Scripture. The subject that I'm going to talk about today scares me. It doesn't scare me to speak to you. You're a pretty friendly crowd. Um, and I know last time I was here, there were eggs in the back. Nobody went and got them. They were my eggs, but <laughs> nobody went and got them. So I, I, feel pre- I feel pretty confident. No one's ever thrown eggs at me yet. But the subject that I'm going to preach is a very heavy subject. It's a very deep subject. And I don't feel real comfortable putting a lot of me into it. I feel more comfortable breaking it up and putting a lot of Scripture into it. Um, the, The sermon's entitled, How Shall We Then Live? It comes from the book of Exodus. Now, I didn't prepare notes. I don't I'm really bad at homework. Um, you know, I, I've never been good at homework, ever. You know, and all my teachers will tell you that I was the student that uh, I was always the underachiever. He could do much better if only he would put some time into it. Well, uh, this was about all the time I could work on, so you don't get any notes, but I would recommend that you write the scriptures down for later reference, because hopefully you're going to have a lot of questions, and those questions need to be answered by God. Uh, The sermon again is, how shall we then live? Uh, Some of you may be familiar with that title. That was a book with the same title by Francis Schaeffer, written in 1979, published in 1979, and also a 12-part documentary with the same title. Uh, I have never read the book because I bought the book in 1979, right when it was first published, and I lent it to Robert. Robert never gave it back. (laughs) Robert, if you hear this, I want my book back. I have watched the first two parts of the documentary. They do seem good. Uh, Hopefully, Lord willing, before he comes, I will see the other ten parts. The subject is the sovereignty of God and how that sovereignty relates to man's responsibility and man's proper response to that responsibility. It's a subject of infinite weight. And a subject of infinite weight needs to be carried by an infinite God. Your first reaction to a sermon about the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man may be that it's not very important to you. It's not a very practical subject but one only for theologians to wrestle with. Maybe when you did stop and give it some thought sometime in your life, it made your head swim. My prayer is that God will grant you discernment and understanding as you listen today, and through the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells in you richly, He will reveal these truths to you and the practical application of them in your lives. I fear that ignorance and the cavalier attitude that prevails in Christianity and in the world in general today 
causes all of us serious consequences. Maybe you will initially agree that there is value in this subject, but then you say to yourself, maybe they, whoever they are, have a problem in this area, but surely not me. The symptoms of having a cavalier attitude and about making good choices are clearly seen if you just stop and look for them. I'm going to give you a few examples. Now, I, I do want to say that I'm not, I'm not trying to be legalistic. I'm not trying to do the chicken thing. Can't eat eggs from a chicken born on the Sabbath or, you know, because that's work. I don't want to get into that. So the examples that I'm going to give are not examples that I want you to focus on the examples. I want you to focus on the attitude behind the examples. You may hear a dialogue. I mean, you hear things like this every day. We say things like this every day. You know, you really ought to sell your Harley. I'm stepping on some toes here, I think. You know you have a family, and you know how dangerous those bikes are. At least wear a helmet. The cavalier response, I'm careful. God protects me and watches over me. Besides, when your number's up, it's up. And I got Geico. I'm insured. <laughs> or a teenager in response to his parent. You know... I can't do anything good enough for you. Somebody poked you. I can't do anything good enough for you, so why try? Wife to husband. Honey, don't you think you've had enough potatoes and sausage gravy? Dear. Now, I'm going to warn you. Carol's wonderful. I don't do it. I don't do it. Don't patronize your wife. I don't do it. I think it's a dangerous, something dangerous you don't, want to, you don't want to do. Dear, everyone dies of something. At least I'll die happy. More gravy, please. Heavy on the sausage. Please believe me, this sermon is not about Harley's sausage or any other example. It's only about the attitude, about our responsibility and the choices that we make. Jonathan Edwards wrote in a careful and strict inquiry of all the knowledge that we can ever obtain, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves is the most important. I want to repeat that. Of all the knowledge that we can ever, and this is coming from Jonathan Edwards, of all the knowledge that we can ever obtain, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves are the most important. The subject of the sovereignty of God in relation to man's responsibility has been referred to the Gordian knot of theology. A Gordian knot is defined as an exceedingly or complicated problem or a deadlock. It originates from a myth that King Gordius of Phrygia had tied this massive, complicated knot and one of the prophets back in those days, or oracles as they were referred to, had predicted that the man who could untie this knot would become the next king of Asia. Well, Alexander the Great heard of this, immediately hopped on his horse, Bucephalus. I don't know why I remember that. Bucephalus was his horse's name. Hops on his horse, Bucephalus, 
heads out to King Gordius, takes the knot, cuts it with his sword. Then when his dad dies, he becomes the next king of Asia. So if God permits, by His grace and by His mercy, we will cut the Gordian knot of theology instead of trying to untie it. For this knot can only be untied by one, and that is God, its maker. Turn to Hebrews 6, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God, and of the instruction of washings and the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. You mean God may not permit? Paul says if, if God permits. I warn you, this subject is dangerous, and it can have all sorts of consequences. But the Bible is full of dangerous subjects. The sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man are subjects that appear many times throughout Scripture and should never be ignored. For the consequences of ignorance are more perilous and more dangerous than any mistaken idea or misconception that you may have acquired. Turn please to Ezekiel 33, verse 1. We're going to read through verse 11. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, If I bring a sword upon the land... And the people of the land take a man from among them and make them their watchman. And he sees the sword coming and blows the trumpet and warns the people. Then if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet and did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, so the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes one of them, that person is taken away in their iniquity. But his blood I will require of the watchman's hand. So you, son, son of man, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them the warning from me. If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak and warn the wicked to turn from his way, that wicked person shall die in their iniquity. But his blood I will require of you." If I warn you to, turn, to warn the wicked, I apologize. And you, O son of man, verse 10, say to the house of Israel, thus you have said, Surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we rot away because of them. How shall we then live? Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. 
but that the wicked turn from his way. Turn, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? I just want to say that when a preacher stands up here, Terry in his office, Terry is the watchman. Terry is obligated. Terry is obligated to bring you the word. And Terry's, it's a great, it's an awesome responsibility. It's one that I don't, I don't know how you, I don't know how you handle it every week. It's only through the grace of God. But it is an awesome responsibility to hear, but it is our responsibility to hear those words and take them to heart. The Jews speaking in verse 10, the ones that said, how shall we then live, are in exile in Babylon in captivity. They're fully aware of the ongoing siege at the city of Jerusalem at the time. They have been confronted with the fruits of their deeds as foretold by prophetic utterances of Moses, Joshua, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and others. Three of these prophecies I like to refer to are Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 3, um, verse 7. But, but the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you, for they are not willing to listen to me. Because all of the house of Israel has hard foreheads and a stubborn heart. My father used to, I don't know what it means in Italian, but I think it means this. He used to call people a fagiotost, which means a hard face. Um, and that was when I, you know, like four years old, anybody that was either going faster than him was a fagiotost. If they were going slower than him, that was a fagiotost. So it applied to everybody, I guess, except him. Behold, I have made your face as hard as their faces, and your forehead as hard as their foreheads. Like emery, harder than flint, I have made your forehead. Fear them not, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. Verse Ezekiel 24, 23 to 24. Your turbans shall be on your heads, and your shoes on your feet. But you shall rot away in your iniquities and groan to one another. Thus, Ezekiel, you shall be assigned according to all... Ezekiel shall be assigned to you according to all that he has done, you shall do. When this comes upon you, you will know that I am the Lord God. And the last one is from Leviticus, from Moses. And those of you who are left shall rot away in your enemies' lands because of their iniquity and also because of the iniquities of their fathers. They shall rot away like them. The Jews knowing, I mean, there are hundreds of prophecies that God has told them how stubborn they are. God has told them they didn't have the ability to serve him. God has laid it out to them. And the Jews now voice their cavil. A cavil is a complaint to God. Surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us. They are more than we can bear. We are rotting away because of them. And even if we pine away in our sins, what good will it do? God, you've ordained it. How should we then live? We can never make you happy. So why try? They were captive in a foreign land. They feel they are without hope. They will never see Israel again, yet alone the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was under siege, 
had been for some time. And it was inevitable because God had declared and ordained it would fall and be destroyed. In fact, about a year after Ezekiel preached this to the people of Israel and Babylon, Jerusalem did fall. And uh, I think maybe about three months later, one of the first survivors arrived in Babylon with the bad news. Jerusalem is gone. The city is gone. Their complaint to God was that God had turned their, His back on them, and He had even ordained their backslide into sin and inevitable punishment. All that He has declared has come to pass. The only promise that they could trust in was that they would rot away in their sins. They complain. They don't repent. They complain. What is the use of doing anything? Why repent? How shall we then live? Why should we then live? What benefit is there in serving you? This cavil of theirs, and I want to define what a cavil is. A cavil is a way of arguing. It's, it's a way of finding fault unnecessarily. You raise tri trivial objections, usually in an attempt to win an argument. You'll notice that uh, in life, in business, in family experiences, that when someone raises this cavil, they'll raise a cavil, that's what it's about. It's about winning the argument without the logical reason for winning it. It's just, you know, it's no, no use. We're just going to throw it out. It's over. I want you to turn to a cavil in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 25, verses 24 through 31. This is in one of the parables. Um, it's actually right in the middle of the parables, but this is the parable about the uh, master who gives five talents and two talents and one talent and goes away on a long trip. And this is the one speaking is the one man who had one talent. He also who had received one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So, I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I did not sow, and you knew I gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers at my coming. I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it, him to, give it to him who has ten talents. For everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Cast this worthless servant into the outer darkness, in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. This cavil, complaint against God, appears many times in the book of Job. Uh, I'm only going to read a couple of them very quickly. Uh, Job 25.4, How can a man be right before God? 
How can he who is born of a woman be pure? And again, Job 15, 15. Behold, God puts no trust in his holy ones, and the heavens are not pure in his sight. Later in the book of Job, in fact, chapters, chapters 32 through 38 inclusive, Elihu, the son of Barakel, rebuts Job's cavils, and there are a lot of them. Uh, there's Elihu breaks it down into almost five chapters worth. Elihu rebuts Job's cavils. And then when Job meets God face to face in chapter 42, Job's response when confronted with his own sinfulness and the holy and righteousness of an angry God, and God was angry, Job's silly arguments and cavil melt away into nothing. Job says, I know you can do all things, and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. God said, Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Job, Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. God said, Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. Job, I had heard of you by the hearing of my ears, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and in ashes. The next two cavils are probably the most famous quoted. The lesser of the two, and I do mean lesser of the two, is from Frederick Nietzsche, and it's found in his book, Thus Spake Zarah. Uh, first of all, I don't recommend this book to anyone. Uh, it is probably one of the worst books ever written. It has no intrinsic value in itself except as an example of what not to be. So if, if maybe that's your goal is you want an example of how not to live, this is probably a, a how-do book on how to do that. Or if you want a book on how to die early, it's a, it's a great book for that too because it will lead you to destruction. A quote from Thus Spake Zarathustra. let say that five times fast. He, Frederick Nietzsche speaking about God here. So this is who he's talking about. He calls God Wrath Snorter. That's his pet name for God, Wrath Snorter. You can, you, you can just see how much God cares about him too. He was also indistinct how he raged at us this wrath snorter, because we understood him badly. But why did he not speak more clearly? And if the fault lay in our ears, why did he, not, why did he give us ears that hear him badly? If there was dirt in our ears, well, who put it there? Too much is miscarried with him, this potter, who had not learned thoroughly enough, that he took revenge on his pots and creations. However, because they turned out badly. This was a sin in good, against good taste. There is also good taste in piety. This at last said, Away with such a God. Better to have no God. Better to set up one's own account. Better to be a fool. Better to be God oneself. I can see why I don't recommend the book. The most quoted cavil 
is actually run written by the Apostle Paul. Now, Paul is not complaining himself. He is just repeating the complaint that he hears. And I'm going to read this in context. Uh, it's from Romans chapter 9, verses 9 through 26. It's a lengthy paragraph. You guys are all familiar with it. But actually, this is where Frederick Nietzsche got his complaint, was from Romans. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not born and had done nothing good or evil or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice with God? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose... I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and my name might be proclaimed amongst the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You say to me then, the cavil, why does God still find fault? For who can resist his will? Paul's answer to the cavil, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of His glory for the vessels of mercy, which He prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom He has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as it is indeed said in the book of Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it is said of them, you are not my people, there they will be called the sons of the living God. The sovereignty of God over his pots appears many times throughout scriptures. This is just three from the Gospel of John chapter 6. This is only three from one book, one chapter. John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will no wise cast out. John 6, 44, no one can come unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. John 6, 65, this is the one that made the disciples scatter. And he said to them, that is why I told you, no one can come 
unless it has been granted him by the Father. In the book of Acts, when the Jews in Antioch rejected Barnabas and Paul's message of good news, the good news of salvation, Paul and Barnabas turned to the Gentiles. This is Acts 13, 47 through 48. Paul and Barnabas quote from the book of Isaiah, For the Lord commanded us, saying, I have made you a light unto the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many who were appointed to eternal life believed. Notice it doesn't say as many as believed were appointed to eternal life. As many as who were appointed to eternal life believed. The fulfillment of the prophet Hosea, Paul mentions in Romans 9. And the very place where it is said to them, You are not my people, there they will be called the sons of the living God. The sovereignty of God over his pot's ability to sin appears many times in the scriptures. I'm only going to go to one. There's one place that it's mentioned. God declares to Abimelech in the book of Genesis that he prevented Abimelech from sinning by lying with Abraham's wife Sarah. Genesis 20, verse 6, Then God said to Abimelech in a dream, Yes, I know you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I, God, it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. The question I would raise at this point, if God could prevent Abimelech from sinning, why not Adam? And I think the answer is readily apparent again, going back to Jonathan Edwards. Of all the knowledge that we can ever obtain, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves are most important. For to only know the sovereignty of God apart from our fallen human condition and mercy and unmerited favor shown us, we could never truly value who He is or what He is like. Without the fall, we would look at God and say what they say in the South. I did ask permission from Susan before I, I brought this up. In the South, they say something like, that's nice. That's real nice. Now, they say the same thing in New York, only they don't use as many words, and I can't repeat it, but that's what it means. Use your imagination. Now, after the fall... We see him and we see ourselves in our fallen condition. And we, like Job, say, I heard you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. A few quick scriptures on the sovereignty of God. Job 42.2, I know you can do all things and nothing, no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens and he does all. All that he pleases. Isaiah 14, 24, the Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be. As I have purposed, so shall it stand. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10, remember the former things of old. For I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not done saying, 
My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Ephesians 1.11 In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to His will. Proverbs 16.9 The heart of the man plans the way, but the Lord establishes the steps. Jeremiah 10.23 I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself, that it is not in man who walks to direct his steps. Some scriptures talking about man's responsibility. 1 Corinthians 3, 7 through 9. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but it is only God who gives the growth. He who plants and waters are one, and each will, re- each will receive wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Galatians 6, 4, but let each one of you test his own works, and then then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each one of you will bear your own load. Ezekiel 18, 30, therefore I judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways declares the Lord God, repent and turn from your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Revelation 2, 23, Jesus speaking, and I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am He who searches the mind and heart, and I will give each of you according to your own works. Matthew twelve thirty seven. again Jesus speaking, for by your words will you be justified, by your words you will be condemned. Galatians 6, 7 through 8, do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he reap. For the one who sows in his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Going back to Ezekiel 33, uh, we're going to start at verse 10 and go through verse 20. God is going to give here what God calls lessons to live by. So this is God's lessons to live by. Um, And this isn't the end of the sermon, so I don't want to get you guys excited. (laughs) You know, I mean, like, it's like Terry comes up with lessons one through five, and you can see like, oh, wow, look, look the time. We're in good shape, all right? We're not there yet. So I don't want anybody disappointed at the end. We're getting there, but we're not there yet. Going back to Ezekiel 33, starting with verse 10. And you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, Thus have you said, Surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we rot away because of them. How shall we then live? Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way, live and turn, turn back, From your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? And you, son of man, say to your people, The righteousness of the righteous shall not deliver him when he transgresses. And as for the wickedness of the wicked, he shall not fall by his wickedness when he turns from his wickedness. And the righteous shall not be able to live by his righteousness when he sins. Though I say to the righteous that he shall surely live, Yet if he trusts in his righteousness and does injustice, 
none of his righteousness, none of his righteous deeds shall be remembered. But in his injustice that he has done, he shall die. And again, though I say to the wicked, you shall surely die. Yet if he turns from his sin and does what is right, just and right, if the wicked restores the pledge, gives back what he has taken by robbery, and walks in statutes of life, not doing justice, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the sins that he has committed shall be remembered against him. He has done what is just and right. He shall surely live. Yet your people say the way of the Lord is not just. When it is their own way that is not just. When the righteous turns from righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it. And when the wicked turns from his wickedness and does what is right, he shall live by this. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, I will judge you each according to your ways. I don't want anybody to think here that what I'm preaching about is losing your salvation. Um, The perseverance of the saints is real. It's true. It's something for another sermon but it, it is something real and it is true. What we're talking about here is responsibility for our actions. I also want to say that in the, uh, one of the old styles of preaching during the Reformation is that the, if you read Jonathan Edwards' sermon on sinners in the hands of an angry God, Jonathan Edwards laid out, he's laying out law. Mark said last time that God doesn't grade on a curve. God does not grade on a curve. God demands 100%. That's why Jesus Christ died for us, because we couldn't give the 100%. But when these old-time preachers, Jonathan Edwards included, preached, what they did was they would lay out the law. They would bring you under condemnation and guilt. You would feel it. The, the people that were waiting in the front row of that sermon that he preached, they actually grabbed onto the pew because they thought the earth was going to open and swallow them and cast them into hell. The Holy Spirit was that powerful on them. But in those sermons, what they would do is they would start off, and, and, and most of the sermon was on that. It was on law. It was about bringing conviction. Then the sermon would switch to the grace of what God has done. Then once the sermon switched to the grace of what Christ has done for us, that we don't face this wrath or punishment from the, the earlier part, then there would be a spontaneous obedience generated from the gratitude that was created. Realizing what Christ has done for us, we would be so grateful we would live according to that. So, getting, this, is not, this is about having a cavalier attitude in making any, any decision in life. How much misery is in the world because we never count the costs. How much suffering because we do not weigh our actions. And remember, this is chickens. You like chickens. The chickens do not come home to roost for our sins for many years. There's no guarantee they'll come home. God is sometimes gracious and our chickens do not come home to roost. But that's no guarantee. Just be aware, what we do can come back to haunt us. I want you to turn to Luke 13. Verses 1 through 5. There were present there at that season some who told him about the Galileans 
whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or the 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse sinners than all others who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus is saying to them, marvel not that these who, make, who Pilate killed were wicked mar- and died. Marvel not that the ones who the tower fell on were di- that died. Just marvel you weren't there. All of you. Marvel that it wasn't you. So how shall we then live? In response to the sovereignty of God, do we cavil against God? Do we expect to win the argument? Earlier, I promised that with God's grace, we might cut the Gordian knot without attempting to untie it. For again, to untie this knot can only be untied by God. Many theologians have tried. Some have done better than others. Jonathan Edwards included. Jonathan never completely unties it, but he, he, he gets through a couple layers. Almost just like Alexander the Great, we do have something that we can do the same to the old knot that he did. God is sovereign, man is responsible, and because both are true, we should seek to desire the obedience that comes from heartfelt gratitude. The gratitude that comes from the recognition that we deserve wrath, but that Christ freely, taking the wrath of God upon himself, and now unshowers us with unmerited favor. I was telling... uh, Bev before the service. That's what I feel this jacket is. It's like I give it my unmerited favor. It's 35 years old. Carol is not super fond of it. Um, you notice she's not here today, so I can wear it. I think she would have let me wear it anyways, you know, but, but I mean, it's got patches. Isn't that neat? But I've had it for 35 years. For some reason, I love this jacket. I could go to the men's warehouse and buy a nice brand new spanking sport coat. I can do that. That's not a problem. But this, this jacket, I love this jacket. It's got my unmerited favor. It doesn't deserve it, and it knows that. And it is grateful it hasn't been thrown away. I mean, it could have ended up a, a, a plastic blanket or something. Christ freely took his wrath upon himself that we deserved. But don't get too comfortable, for comfort leads to apathy, and apathy leads to a cavalier attitude, and a cavalier attitude leads to sin. Consider this passage from Romans chapter 11, 19 through 23. You say then, branches were broken off, that I might be grafted in. Well said. Because of unbelief, they were broken off. And you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, He may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and the severity of God. On those who fell severity, but you, toward you, goodness, if you continue in His goodness. 
Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. Consider the goodness and the severity of our God. Most people only consider His goodness. That's probably the, one of the major problems with Christianity today. That if uh, you ask anybody what Jesus is like, uh, you might have him knocking at a door with a lamb on his shoulders. Um, you know, if you're Catholic, you got this like happy Jesus with a heart. Um, you know, I mean, there's all different pictures of Jesus and they're all very, very nice. But I want you to look at the book of Jude. Jude does not have a chapter. Uh, so if you're looking for a chapter, you won't find it. It has a verse. Jude, verse 5. Jude, speaking about our Lord Jesus says, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, Jesus saved a people out of the land of Egypt. Afterward, destroyed those who did not believe. It was Christ that led them out into the wilderness. It was Christ that was in the pillar of fire. It was Christ that was with Moses in the tabernacle in a tent. It was Christ that was with them, leading them out into the wilderness. It was Christ who destroyed Pharaoh and his army. It was Christ who destroyed them. The same Jesus that saved us destroyed them because of their unbelief. I don't want you to turn to it, but I just want you to think about it. In the Gospel of John, chapter 12, John talks about when Isaiah saw Jesus' glory. When Isaiah witnessed the glory of Christ in the Old Testament. That scripture is Isaiah 6, chapter 6. When, when Isaiah sees the Lord seated on a throne with the cherubim and seraphim and, and just that miraculous sign in Isaiah 6, that was Christ. That was Christ who he saw. That was the Lord of lords and the King of lords and the Lord of hosts. And when John meets Jesus in the book of Revelation, John falls on his face as a dead man. That was Christ. So how shall we then live? Remember God is sovereign. Remember, man is responsible. Consider always the goodness and the severity of God. Remember, God is not mocked. What a man sows, so shall he reap. Even the worst cavalier person looks both ways before they cross the street. It's that simple. Look both ways. What do you call a person who does not look both ways? Anybody have an idea? Dead. That's what you call them. Dead. Every Calvinist, every Arminian, every Pelagian must do the same thing when they come to a street. They must look both ways. The key is not just counting the cost. The key is not just looking both ways. But the key is, first, consider the goodness and the severity of God. It's that simple. Don't try to untie the knot. Uh, the first time I tried to untie the knot was probably 40 years ago. I was sitting, reading my Bible at a desk, and my son laughs about it because I've told, I've told the story to him. I dropped a pencil on the floor, and I thought, 
why did I drop the pencil? God, you knew about me dropping that pencil before the foundation of the earth. Why did I drop the pencil? And, and, and I didn't hear an audible voice, but I heard it in my heart. And it was stupid. Pick the pencil up. <laughs> Again, to repeat the quote from Jonathan Edwards, of all the knowledge that we can ever obtain, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves is the most important. I too would like to end with a poem, but I didn't write it. I do like it. It's from Isaac Watts. It's uh, Psalm 6, 116. Uh, I love the Lord. He heard my cries and pitied every groan. Long as I live when troubles rise, I'll hasten to His throne. I love the Lord. He bowed His ear and chased my griefs away. Oh, let my heart no more despair while I have breath to pray. My flesh declined, my spirits fell. And I drew near the dead, while inward pangs and fears of hell perplexed my wakeful head. My God, I cried, thy servant save, thou ever good and just. Thy power can rescue from the grave. Thy power is all I trust. The Lord help me sore distressed. He bid my pains remove. Return my soul to God my rest. For thou hast known his love. My God hath saved my soul from death and dried my falling tears. Now to his praise I'll spend my breath and my remaining years. Now I am thine, forever thine, nor shall my purpose move. Thy hand has loosed my bonds of pain and bound me with thy love. Here in thy courts I leave my vow, thy rich grace record. Witness, ye saints, that hear me now, if I forsake the Lord. May the Lord, by His great mercy and love, show you the depths of His compassion and kindness toward you. May your obedience to His commands pour from your hearts from gratitude. Praise the Lord. I do want to say that if, if any of you are struggling, and, and, and sometimes there are, if any of you are struggling with your eternal security or whether God loves you or not, I would recommend that you read a book called A Bruised Read by Sibs. Uh, it's an old book. It's a difficult book, um, you know, written in 16th century English. Uh, but it is, it is a, an excellent book. If you are struggling in that area, I do recommend that you read it. And you can get it in Carlisle at the uh, Banner of Truth bookstore. They have it at Banner of Truth. It's uh, something that they publish. And we, it is a blessing. That bookstore down there is a blessing. Thank you.